All right, I'm going to talk to you this. We're going to start a new series next Sunday, and it's going to go four or five weeks. We're going to be talking about water baptism. We're going to be talking about communion, divine healing, the sacraments type of thing. I don't know that I'll follow the, the Roman Catholic Church list uh, in its entirety. It's like seven, depending on the list that you look at. Uh, I looked at two or three this week, and one list says there's five, one list says there's seven. And so I'm going to pick two or three that are really pertinent to us and kind of delve into that because there's so much about it. I know you've noticed this year we've layered in scripture reading in the body of the service. We've now layered in the last couple of months communion. Uh, and so we're also uh, kind of highlighting water baptism a little bit more frequently as well. And so we're gonna, I'm going to talk to you about the whys of that because it's very important that you understand when you, when you, when you do those things, what are you doing? What does it mean? And, uh, and it's real easy for those of us that are traditional church people that have been to church a lot um, to take it for granted. I know when I was a kid, um, the first Sunday of every month is when we did communion. And, uh, and I, one of the worst tail whippings I got from my daddy was acting up during communion one Sunday morning. And I mean, he literally, he was up front, all the deacons would come down and they would hold the elements and you'd, you'd bow your head, you was real quiet. So me and my cousin being the people that we were back in those days, we got to acting up in church and my daddy sat down the elements that he was holding, walked to where I was at, grabbed me by the arm, took me out in front of the little church out in the country underneath the oak tree and talked to me for about 20 seconds <laughs> about why you don't act up during communion in church and uh, tanned my hide and brought me back in and set me down next to my mama. And you can rest assured that I didn't act up during communion anymore after that because it was, it was a lesson well learned. And so um, I'm, not, I'm not recommending or telling you that you've got to whip somebody if they don't take communion right or anything like that. I'm just saying, don't act up during communion. Everybody okay? <laughs> so we're going to talk about it for a few weeks and kind of see what, what's what. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of lessons with communion especially. But even water baptism, there's, it's not just ritual. It's not just something that we do. There's spiritual things that take place during each of those. And so I want to kind of unpack all of that over the next few weeks. And, and who knows, maybe we'll get to, uh, maybe we'll get to baptize some of you. And, uh, you know, I've been baptized. Okay, well, maybe it didn't stick. We'll, we'll keep dunking you until it does. How about that? All right, take, the, take your version app or your Bible. Turn to Genesis chapter 32 with me this morning. Um, I'll be honest with you, I, I really, I've, I've gone back and forth with two messages this week. I knew I wanted to wait until next Sunday to start the series, but, but I really kind of struggled this week between two things that I want to kind of talk about, and I actually tried on Wednesday afternoon for a little while, I tried kind of combining the two, see if I could make one out of the two, and it would, we'd be here till sometime Wednesday afternoon if I did that. And so, and I, I don't want to listen to me that long, I don't want to talk that long, and you probably don't want to listen to me that long either. And so we're going to deal with today a very specific topic. It's called desperation. And uh, one, of the, one of the greatest examples of desperation in Scripture is the story of Jacob. And, uh, and so we're going to look at this. Verse 22, uh, that night Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two maidservants, and 11 his, son, his, his 11 sons and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all of his possessions. So Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. 
The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel. Because you've struggled with God and with men and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. Now, I'm not going to go into the entirety of Jacob's story, but I would, I would recommend if you've got some time this week, and, and in addition to whatever you're doing devotionally, to just kind of delve around in Jacob's story. Because he's a very interesting character. Uh, his name actually means supplanter, which means he's, he's, when you look at him as a kid and as a young man, he's devious. He's got all kind of, he, he's really kind of figured some stuff out. He's got a devious nature to him. Uh, you know, he... Uh, he swindles his brother out of his birthright, and he does all kind of, with his help of his mom, and a whole bunch of other stuff. And then he goes to a land, and he's, he's trying to find a wife there, and he, he works, and he gets, and he goes, gets married, and when he wakes up the next morning, he's married to the wrong girl. Uh, and so he works another seven years or so and, to get the right girl, and a whole bunch of other stuff. But in the process of all that, he literally makes this deal with his father-in-law, hey, now I'm going to take care of your sheep. And the father said, well, payment, I'm going to give you all the sheep that have spots and stripes. And so Jacob has this, this ingenuity about him. He knows if you put certain things in the water or next to the water, that even solid color sheep will start having stripes and spots. And so he amasses this huge, huge flock of sheep and goats and all this kind of stuff. Well, in the process of all of the things that's happened to him, when he steals his brother's birthright, um, and, you know, depending on your, your take on that, it could be that, I don't know, his brother sold it for a bowl of soup or something. I don't know. But the deal with it is that Esau, his brother, makes a decision. When my dad dies, I'm going to kill him. I'm going to kill Jacob. So he's gone for 20 years. And this story is the setting of Jacob coming back to his homeland. And he has to go through the country of his brother Esau. So Jacob is in this scenario now. He, he knows that he's going to go. He knows his brother wants to kill him. All of those kind of things. He's scared, but he wants to go to his homeland and everything. And so Jacob basically has, he knows there's, there's multiple seasons in his life. There's been seasons in Jacob's life where he knew what it was to depend on God. And there's been seasons in Jacob's life where he knew what it was to depend on himself. All of his life, there was this pattern here. He, couldn't, he could put his trust in God and the supernatural, or he could just trust his own ingenuity and his own natural ability. And a lot of us have those things happen to us in our life. We go through seasons where we just, we just know we're having to trust God because we don't know any other thing that's going on. On the other hand, there's just those seasons when we go through that we, we just kind of go, you know, I don't know how to do this. I know how to do this. I've got this. And so instead of maybe depending on God fully, we just kind of handle it the way we know how to handle it. It's kind of like when you, when you work your job so long, you just get to where you know how to do your job and you just do your job. And you don't think that much about it. It's almost reflex, almost second nature. So Jacob had these seasons in his life where he could depend on God. But he also had these seasons and most of his life is when he's literally dealing and walking with his own ingenuity. He's going home for the first time. He's got to go through his, to his, to his dad's, to, to his uh, brother's homeland, the land of his brother Esau. While he's traveling back, a messenger comes to him and says, hey, your brother is coming to meet you. He's heard, he heard that you were coming into town. He's coming to meet you. And oh, by the way, he's got 400 men with him. Now, if you and your brother have been at odds for 20 years 
and you decide to go back home and in your travels, someone comes and meets you and says, by the way, the brother that, you, that hates you, that told he's going to kill you, is coming to meet you. He's got 400 guys with him. You're not going to go, hey, it's going to be a party. <laughs> you're just not going to go down. That's where, you're not going to go there mentally. You're going to go, he's going to kill me. He said he was going to kill me. Now he's going to make sure he's bringing 400 men with him. He's going to kill me. Because he remembered the last word he heard from his brother in Genesis 27, 41. Esau hated Jacob because their father had given Jacob the blessing. But when you look at it, there's a whole lot of stuff going on. And Esau began to scheme. I will soon be in mourning my, father, be mourning my father's death. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. Esau's had 20 years to simmer. In his anger and his resentment toward Jacob for sealing the birthright and the blessing. Now... It's payback time. Now it's time for payback. And so on this process, when he hears about this, Jacob begins to, in his own mind, okay, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to try to win my brother over. So he develops these, there's nine of them. If you look at, there's nine different gift-bearing entourages that would hopefully soften it. They're in layers. He sends one out and he sends another one out. He sends nine of them in the story, trying to soften uh, Esau's heart toward him, toward, toward Jacob. Finally, he separates his wife and children from the rest of the camp. But we read this in this text this morning, it, it must, Jacob must not have felt it was enough. Because after doing all of this stuff on his own, he realized there's no human solution left and his only hope was with God. And so he, what does he do? He wrestles all night long. He's in this wrestling match. He's in this fight. Isn't it amazing how much tenacity that we can develop when we're desperate. I mean, he sent nine entourages out with gifts, trying to soften his brother. Still didn't think it was enough, so he sends his wife and his kids across the river. He then has this wrestling match with God, and it lasts all night long because he is desperate. If you look up the word desperate in the thesaurus, you find two words. You find the word hopelessness and you find the word recklessness. I think it's very interesting, those two words, because in times of desperation, often we find ourselves in a place of hopelessness. We feel hopeless. Now, hopelessness is a feeling for you, I'm telling you. That, that's a feeling that I don't, I've felt it a couple of times in my life and I don't like it. I don't like it. Getting to the point where you just, you just feel like there's no hope whatsoever. And it's at this point of hopelessness, it's when, when we're at this point in this hopelessness feeling, that we can take several paths. The first path we can take is usually what people do, and that is we just quit. We quit. Jacob could have just said, nope, going back. I'll go back to where my father-in-law lives. I'll continue working with the sheep and the goats. And I'll never, I, just don't, I, want, I don't want to deal with Esau. And he could have gone back. He could have quit. He could have walked away from it. Now, here's the thing you got to ask yourself this morning. When you look at that, I'm going to walk away from it. Okay, what is it? Identify what it is. What are you walking away from? Usually what we consider to be the final straw isn't the final straw. There's something deeper in there. But when we decide to walk away from it all, from it all, we quit. Sometimes we quit on what? We quit on sometimes the it is our spouse. Sometimes it's our family. Sometimes it's our job. Sometimes it's our church. Sometimes it's our friend. And sometimes the it 
that we're going to walk away from and quit and just walk away from it is God and our relationship with him. Sometimes, and there's been a rash of this over the last few years, sometimes it even goes the path of suicide. It's interesting, and I I mentioned this a few weeks ago, it's interesting to me, every time I pick up a news feed and read through a news feed, another influencer has taken their life. One of the most famous that we just heard of was was, uh, uh, the the mother and the Judd family. The the mother of the Judd. She she committed suicide here just just a few months ago. Battled mental illness most of her life and finally just decided to walk away from it and it, and she took her life. When we choose to quit, it can take multiple, it can be multiple extremes. It can be that we quit on our marriage. It can be, quit, it can be that we quit on our family or we quit our job or the church or the friends or even, and many times we just quit on God and go, God hasn't heard my prayer and so I'm done. There's nothing to this Christianity thing. There's nothing to this God thing. And so I'm just going to quit and walk away from it. That's one of the paths. Another path is that we can become reckless in a negative way. When we get to a point of recklessness, we cast off hope. We, at that point, we choose to cast off the hope. hope make, the Bible talks about hope deferred makes the heart sick. When we cast off hope, when we go, I don't, even if there was, I'm not even going to look at it anymore. I don't think there's any hope, so I'm just choosing to walk away from this. And nobody cares anyway. No one loves me, so I might as well go ahead and go all the way with whatever I'm thinking of doing. Whether it's an affair, or whether it's walking away from our job, or whether it's uh, walking away from the church or God. God doesn't care. God doesn't love me, so I'm just going to walk away from it. And, I'm, and we, we choose this path of recklessness. And the decision follows this, if, if nobody really cares, then nobody's going to really find out. And as I was thinking about this, I, I remembered something when I was 16 years old. And I may have told you this story, I don't know, but I'm just going to kind of be a little bit transparent with you for just a moment this morning about something that happened to me when I was in my mid-teens. There was a point in time when I was a teenager that me and a few of my friends were accused of coming to youth service drunk. There was a, the church was going through a lot of turmoil, and there was a lot of, eh, 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 you know, and you know how churches can be. You know, they just can be nasty. The one thing that I've learned after 40 years of pastoring and 60 years of living in Christian circles is that sheep bite. <laughs> Who knew? But they do. But when you're a young kid and all of a sudden you have adults that are making accusations with you. And with me, it didn't stop with the drinking. I was actually accused of having an affair with my youth pastor's wife at 16. Now, here's the thing about at that time. Neither of those things were true at that time. But me and my two buddies, after a while, we got to thinking about it like this. We're going, you know, they're, they're, they're saying we're getting drunk all the time anyway, so they think we're doing it. Let's do it. Now, I did not have an affair with my youth pastor's wife. Okay, I did not. But I did start drinking and carousing, doing a bunch of other stuff. But I remember, I remember as a, as a 16-year-old kid when the adults in our church 
people that were supposed to be in leadership in our church. We got called before the board, you know, all kind of stuff. You know, and my dad and my mom are sitting down, they're talking to me, you know, or we understand, did, did, did this happen? Did you have, no, I'm not, I'm not drinking. I'm not, I've never had a drink. At that, at that point, I hadn't had it, never, never tasted alcohol. I caught up real quick after that, but I didn't have, at that point, I'd never had anything. And then my dad pulled me aside. He said, son, did this happen? I said, no, dad, I didn't. I did not sleep with her. I did not, I did not, I did not have sex with that woman. In my case, I didn't. It was actually the sound man. I mean, it was going on, but it wasn't me. But I can tell you this, that while as a 16-year-old listening to that and being accused of those things and having to deal with that and walk that, and to make it even more difficult, when I was 14, two years earlier, God called me into the ministry and my pastor knew about it. And, and he was, you know, every time I turned around, Phil's going to be a pastor someday, he's going to be in the ministry someday. And at 14, 15, 16, 17, the pressure of being called into the ministry and have the whole church know it is unbelievable. And now, the one who was called to the ministry at 14 is now drinking at youth service and having sex with the youth pastor's wife. At least that was the the accusations. I can tell you the feeling of hopelessness at that point. I can tell you that there was a point in time when I just went the way of recklessness and said, they're accusing me of it. Let's just do it. And we did. Me and my buddies, we started drinking. We were all the same age, but I looked a lot older than what I was. And so I could walk into any convenience store and buy anything we wanted to buy. I could go into any liquor store and buy anything we wanted to buy. And we did. We just drank and drank a lot. Why? Why are you telling us this story? I'm telling you because there's a, there's a point in time when we, when we have situations that come in our life that we don't see a way out of, that we can quit or we can become reckless in a negative way. In this state of recklessness, we begin to feel that God doesn't hear us and he doesn't care. So we begin to tread dangerously close to enemy territory. Instead of going to the Bible and going to the word of God, which is life, it brings and speaks life into us, we try to ease the pain with a drink or an illicit relationship or a drug or some type of isolation. So we have those paths that we can take. Or there's another path. We can become reckless in a way that's positive. Oh, you can't be positive and be reckless. Just hang on a minute, okay? You can You can. You see, and this recklessness produces the tenacity or resolve in us to hold on to the promises of God. And this this path of recklessness says, I will maintain my hope in God. I may not have hope in any other human being. I may not have hope in myself, but I can choose to have my hope in God, the creator of who I am and the orchestrator of my steps if I follow him. I can choose to have this reckless tenacity 
that says, no matter what happens, I will maintain my hope in God. And this is what happens to Jacob in this story right here. This is, this is where the rubber meets the road for Jacob. I have sent nine entourages ahead. Still 400 men are coming to meet me. I've sent my wife and kids across the river. Still 400 people come to meet me. My brother wants to kill me. The only hope that I have, all of my cunning, all of my ingenuity will not save me in this moment. He finds himself alone and he begins to wrestle with God. And he wrestled and he wrestled and he wrestled all night long. And he finally broke through and received. And the key to this story and for Jacob and for every one of us is the phrase all night long. All night means for the duration. It means as long as it takes. It seems like the Bible says something somewhere about weeping enduring for the night, but joy comes in the morning. It does say that, right? It does. You see, the night is our trouble. It's the it. The night is our trouble. It's that thing, whatever it is. It's that thing that's brought this unbelievable stress and unbelievable situation to where we're, we're at the crossroads. Do we quit? Do we become reckless in a negative way? Or do we choose reckless tenacity in a positive way? But the key to succeeding in the, the it's of our life is the phrase all night long. Night is the trouble. All is the duration. How long does it last? Well, I look at that person over there and theirs only lasted two weeks. But mine's been three months. Jacob's been struggling for 20 years. I've been holding on for a long time, Pastor, but nothing seems to happen. It just seems to be getting worse and getting, the night seems to be getting darker. And I think I'm just going to give up. We always forget that it's darkest right before the sun comes up. We do a lot of outdoor stuff, like camp, you know, all that kind of stuff. Deer hunt, I like to get in a tree stand way before daylight. And I can tell you, you can go to your tree stand way before daylight, but about 20 minutes before the sun comes up over the edge, when you start seeing any, any light in the east, it's dark. I mean, I'm sitting in a tree before, and you, I mean, you can't even see your hand in front of you. You can't see anything. Why? Because it's darkest before the sun pops up over the horizon. I remember years ago, I went into a street stand real early one morning, way before daylight. I'm sitting there waiting, you know, and I'm here, you hear stuff. You know, that's Sasquatch. Yeah, and I'm sitting there and finally the sun starts coming up and I'm sitting there and I see something literally right, I'm like, like five feet away from me. I'm going, what is that? And I'm looking, I'm looking, the sun keeps coming up. It gets a little bit brighter. I'm going, what is that? Keep looking. This thing's still sitting there. I'm thinking, that's, I don't remember that there last week. What is that? When the sun finally comes up, there's a big old owl <laughs> sitting about four feet away from me looking at me. I thought. I've never seen an owl for those of you that are from up north, an owl. Down here is an owl. A-L, owl. I'm looking at this thing, and when it gets light enough, I realize that that thing's not facing me, but he's looking at me. Did you know that an owl, can, their head can 
all spin all the way around. That's the creepiest animal. <laughs> this thing was facing the other way, but he was looking me in the face. And for a fleeting moment, I thought, he's going to jump on me. <laughs> and so when I finally realized what it was and it got daylight enough, I started going, get, get out of here, get my hat off. You know, finally the thing turns his head around and flies away. Creepy looking thing. Has nothing to do with my sermon. It's just a funny story. (laughs) But here's the thing. Before the day comes, before it breaks daylight, it gets dark. In our walk with God, in our time of despair, when it has gotten as dark as you think it's going to get, and then it still gets darker, it's in that moment that our hope is in God because we know that the sun is about to break through. And it breaks through because you were recklessly tenacious all night. Most of us quit. Most of us quit. Most of us choose the path of negative recklessness right before the situations will change. We've held on, 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 and we're tired and we're weary and... We quit right before the sun begins to peak over the horizon. Why? Because we don't hold fast to the promises of God all night. We don't do what Jacob did, and that is, you know, even, even after Jacob was wounded, even after he was wounded, his hip is literally dislocated. He still hangs on. You got to let me go. No, dislocates his hip, changes his name. He's still holding on. But in the end, his tenacity gets the blessing. Yeah, but he's a, he's a biblical character. I'm a guy in the 21st century or late in the 21st century. Doesn't matter. You read the story of Jacob, you find Jacob was as flawed as any human being that's ever lived. Just like the rest of us. So how do I become positively reckless? Well, it's born out of hunger and thirst. It's born out of hunger and thirst. God responds to hunger and God responds to thirst. Jesus actually said this in his writing of the sermon. He said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. How hungry are you to have a breakthrough in your life? How thirsty are you to see God move on your behalf? Are you standing at the crossroads of quit or reckless? Do you choose the path of reckless, negative recklessness, or do you choose the path of positive recklessness? Depends on your level of hunger and your level of thirst. The problem we have, I think, in America is that we tend tend to be bent towards so much convenience and quickness that we don't want to endure for the night. We don't even want to go into the dark. Dr. Michael Brown, who was the, at the Brownsville School of Revival for a number of years, back in the, in the mid-90s, he said this, he fills those who recognize their need, who are empty and broken, who are at the point of desperation, those who are panting for him the way a deer pants for water in the desert. And Psalm, the psalmist in Psalm 42 said those exact words. He said, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants or longs for you, my God. 
Where are you at in your longing? Where are you at in your reckless tenacity? Where are you at in your sense where the it is going on? When that it thing, whatever it is, when it's going on in your life, how are you? Where are you? What is your posture on that? Are you ready to hold on to God and go, I will not turn let, let loose of you. I'm not going to let go until the daylight comes. I'm not going to do this. I'm going to hold fast in this. I'm going to endure for the night because weeping may last for the night, but joy comes in the morning. God answers dependent prayers. He doesn't answer prayers for those of us that look at it from, God, I got this. You just hang out in heaven. I got this covered. He never does anything redundantly and he never does anything unnecessarily. He heals the sick, not the healthy. He restores sight to the blind, not those that can see. Too often we ourselves as, are, we see and view ourselves as healthier than we really are, spiritually speaking. We tell God to do a little tweaking here, do a little tweaking there. Usually we want to tell him what we think is wrong with us. Or whatever we think it is. And the truth of the matter is, he's up in heaven going, dude, do that. I made you. I know you. I formed you. I know your quirks. I know your personality. I know your hurts, your habits, your hangups. I know what's going on in your life. I know you better than you know yourself. And what he wants us to do is submit to him in a way that says, God, whatever you need to do in my life, do it because I'm not going to let go of you until the dawn breaks. I'm going to hold fast to this. This it thing, this thing that I'm struggling with, you're the only answer for me. I can't figure my way out of it. I've got to hold on to you. We refuse to admit that a complete overhaul is needed at times. We tend to live our lives spiritually the way we use our automobiles. There's a red light on the dash. Take a piece of tape over it. If it gives us too much trouble, we trade it in for a new one. Instead of doing the necessary maintenance along the way, when it says change your oil, we cover that up. Oh, we can, we can get 20,000 miles out of one oil change. You can. You might get 40,000. But at 40,000 and more. We don't want to pay the price for enduring through the night. Why? Because it takes too long. It's like through the night. That crucifying the flesh, Phil, that's painful. That sanctification thing, I don't like that. That holy living is too hard. That dying to self, I don't want any part of that. Then guess what? The it in your life is always going to be your master. Well, I might pray a little bit or I might read my Bible a little bit, but I want to do it when it's convenient for me. I'm not going to do it all night. I'm not going to, I'm not going to hang on. I'm not going to do those kind of things. And instead what we do and what a lot of people do this day and age in the last 30, 40, 50 years is that we hear about this thing going on at another place, this crusade, this conference, this revival. And so we go, I can go over there. There's this new thing happening over there. And so we run to this. And we feel good for a day or two, 
And they will run over here. We hear about another wind blowing over here. So we get up here. We want to get in front of the fan over here. So we get in front of the fan over here because there's something new spiritually going on. And so we do this. And then we, oh, no, it's over here. So we run over here. And we're constantly running from one, one spiritual high to another spiritual high, from one spiritual experience to another spiritual experience. And what's happening simply is this. We have become spiritual junkies. We're looking for spiritual highs. We're addicted to spiritual highs instead of going through the process that God has for us, which will be painful and usually will be a long process. We're just like the junkie who gets the, the shakes or the creepy collies waiting for the next toke, smoke, smort, smoke, snort, blow, or shot. We want something now. So, well, I've, I've never been addicted to anything. Are you sure? Well, are you saying I should never go to another thing? I'm not saying that. I'm saying be careful when you run here and there looking for the next spiritual high. Because the dawn doesn't break until the weeping endures for the night. Joy doesn't come until the weeping is over. I want to circumvent the weeping. Sorry, you can't do that. It's like Jesus looking at God going, no, to the cross. But you and I are forgiven today because Jesus took the it and nailed it to the cross and suffered unimaginable pain in the shedding of his blood so that he could go to the tomb in the garden and be resurrected on the third day so that you and I can stand clean before God. And who are you and I to think that we can go to some revival service or some spiritual awakening somewhere and have some spiritual experience and expect everything to go away in that moment and then we find out something else has happened. So we gotta go find another one and we gotta find another one and we gotta find another one. When if we would just submit to the process and live it out, But Phil, that's how I get my joy tank refueled. Let me, let me just tell you something this morning. That, that mindset is not from God. If you're running here and there, jumping from church to church, trying to find something that's going to meet your needs and make you feel better about yourself instead of enduring for the night through the weeping and the pain, that's a lie from the enemy. God does not intend for us to be spiritual junkies running all over a place for a new experience or a new high. He wants you to have his joy. He wants you to have his peace. He wants you to have his contentment, which comes from recklessly and tenaciously clinging to him for the duration of the night or the duration of the trouble that you're in that brought you to the place of desperation to begin with. And I believe the reason that we don't receive the thing we need most in our life is because we just choose to live without it because we don't, we, we don't want the pain. Joy, peace, contentment, even deliverance. We choose to live without it because to live in it and get to it is, a, is tough. It's hard. Well, you've heard me say this a thousand times down through the years. Deliverance without, without discipline is deception. There's got to be deli- de- de- discipline in your life. It's almost all, folks. Little, little, little. Deliverance without discipline is deception. Overcome means just that. You overcome. 
It means you fight and you fight and you fight and you don't stop short of the goal. 2 Timothy 4, 7. I have fought what? The good fight. And I have finished the race. And I have remained faithful. And now, what? Because I fought the fight, I finished the fight, and I remain faithful in the fight, and now the prize awaits. If you quit the fight, there's no prize. You watch the Olympics, watch the sprinters in the Olympics, they're running. If one of the guys, he stops, he stops after about 10 yards and goes, I don't want to do this anymore, but I still want the medal. Doesn't work that way. Doesn't work that way. It takes desperation. It takes reckless tenacity. Holding on until we walk in the joy of the Lord because we have held on to his word. We've held on to his commands. We've held on to his grace and we've held on to his hand. And his promises are always faithful. So this morning, how desperate are you? How desperate are you? What is your it? Do you know what it is? How desperate are you in that thing? Whatever it is. Are you hungry? Are you thirsty? Are you in need? The Bible says that Jesus, Jesus satisfies the hungry with good things. He quenches the thirsty with living water. And he meets us at our deepest point of need. Jacob, we have this lesson of reckless tenacity. We see him recklessly tenacious. He didn't want to continue the way he was. He wanted more than what he had been. He was willing to stay the course and fight for the duration of the night until God blessed him in that. And the question I have for you today is, what about you? What about you? Are you desperate to the point of reckless tenacity? Let's stand all over the room. I, I do not know who this message is for this morning. I do not know. But I know it's for somebody, probably more than one person. So here's what we're going to do this morning. I'm going to ask the prayer team, our altar team, y'all go ahead and make your way to the front. Just be standing here along the front. Do you need just a shot in the arm this morning to kind of help you get to a point where you can hold on through the night? What is it? What is your it? That you're struggling with? What is it that you're wanting to just I quit? Don't quit. And don't take the path that's the easiest, but just, okay, everybody thinks I'm doing it. I'm just going to do it. Don't do what I did. It was a huge mistake that's created unbelievable issues since that time. I was 16 years old. I'm not anymore. But there's still stuff that I deal with today that started when I was 16, 17 years old. Why? Because I chose the path of recklessness that was counterproductive and negative. Even though I knew nothing that was being said about me was true, I chose it. They think I'm happy, they think I'm doing it, so I'm going to do it. Instead of going, it's not true. God has me. I am his child and he will see me through this. So I just want to ask you this morning, if you're here today and you go, you know what? I need to be reckless, 
recklessly tenacious in holding on to God during this time in my life. And I need prayer. Step out right now and move forward in Jesus' name. Don't hesitate. Don't wait. Step out and move forward. Come on. Others are coming. Whatever you need. I need, I need to make the decision to endure for the night. I need to make the decision to endure all night. Anybody else? Those of you that are out there, just just slip your hand this way. Just begin to pray for these that are here. Just begin to pray. Because let me tell you something. They need us to uphold them. They need us to lift them up, to build them up. They need us to speak over them right now and just to begin to pray and intercede for every person that's here. Because whatever they're in, whatever's going on in their life, they need that reckless tenacity. They need that in their life. They need that in their life. Father, you see every person here across the front of this room. God, you see every person that has responded this morning around these altars. God, and I pray right now, God, as they make the decision to be recklessly tenacious, to hold fast to your promises, God, to hold fast until their joy becomes complete, to hold fast until your peace and your contentment and your joy floods their life, God. We know that weeping lasts for the night, but we also know that right before dawn, it gets dark and it gets even darker. But God, I pray that they'll have the tenacity to hold fast to you and know beyond the shadow of a doubt that there is the sun that is gonna become breaking through at any moment in their life. Do a work in their life this morning, God. Do a work in them and do a work through them today, God. And may they hold on to you with the tenacity of a bulldog, God. May they reap the reward of your blessing over their life as joy erupts in the morning. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. While these are being ministered to here, let's pray the Lord's Prayer together, and then Tommy's going to come and finish us out here. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. Love you, Jen. You, Tommy.